Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter Five. transition back to normal space was as smooth as any I can recall, and breaking with seeming tradition, it came late in third shift with nary a meal to dump. Normally, in off time for me, I decided that Small's little hints probably stemmed from something, so I convinced Carmi that we should have defenses covered coming in just in case. When we arrived... There was nothing notable within the vicinity of our star jump point except a standard string of traffic monitor drone craft, the nearest being 10 million kilometers off the primary spinward. There was also a piece of space junk within 5 million, which was probably a failed buoy that nobody had bothered to repair, remove, or even mark on the standard charts. While that didn't bode well for local efficiency standards, it wasn't too close to any of the normal approaches, so nobody seemed to care. Certainly I didn't. After assuring myself we were alone, though not necessarily unnoticed thanks to the working drones, I powered down gunnery and logged all the uneventful particulars. If there was, in fact, anything confrontational about the system, or even noteworthy, it was well hidden from out here. The star was yellow-white, main sequence, and not especially bright as such things went. It sported a couple gas giants of no particular note, Inner rocky worlds included one small airless thing close into the primary and another larger one within the sweet spot of solar exposure. Because this latter world also possessed a surface gravity close to human norm, it had been terraformed and settled. Barlow was, therefore, more or less what you'd expect of an agro-industrial world with a low population and an atmo-hydro-biosphere crafted by a cut-rate outfit. Barely 47 million souls live there planet-wide, in rural towns, centralized farming centers, and one small city. These settlements were mostly found along an equatorial belt locked in permanent tundra. Massive polar ice caps comprising nearly two-thirds of the planet's total surface and shallow seas frozen down to the dirt made up the remainder. The weather was remarkably stable, if you didn't mind a mean average of 7 degrees Celsius with near-desert-like precipitation along the populated areas. Anecdotal weather commentary from various sources indicated that true storm conditions were rare and never severe even then. Light snowfall or freezing rain, that was about it. Volcanic activity was relegated to microtremors too small to even be noticed without sensitive equipment. Gen-engineered grains of various stripes grew like a legion of champs here, according to the literature. Or maybe it was propaganda. Or maybe I didn't care. It was too near first shift to bother going back to sleep, so I went to the galley and made a carafe of real coffee, dozing on my feet in the stark white light while I waited for it to brew. 
Rena didn't drink the stuff, so when she made it, it was simply awful and strangely inconsistent. First too strong, then too weak, then burnt, then lukewarm. Always bad, but never in the same way twice. If the girl had any mystery at all about her, it lay in her failings. For expediency, we were both expected to work mealtimes. So, though she was soon off-duty, pulling mid and third shifts to my first and mid, she'd be in here soon. The overlap allowed us to compare notes and do those jobs too big for just one person. Different ships had different arrangements, the worst by far being any kind of rotating shift. This one suited me fine. Rena was probably down in cargo at this point since her primary responsibility was as Candy's assistant. Originally, I'd had no idea what they could possibly have to do in mid-flight down there, but Candy, apparently, was a sweet, big-hearted, soft-spoken tyrant and a neurotic perfectionist. She religiously checked, or had Rena check, all tie-downs, locks, and other immobilization techniques, all security seals, manifests, and safety equipment, and the paperwork of each and every item during each and every shift on each and every flight. She seemed to live in mortal terror of making a mistake. Or rather, the terror came when she wasn't confirming that she hadn't done so. She was just fine, even cheerful, left to her own devices. It kept her out of trouble anyway, not that she was likely to even cause a frown by accident. And the fact that her inventories were always perfect, with every item accounted for, every form filled out and filed, every single piece of cargo safe and secure, kept the offs screamingly happy with her. It's a fact that customs can be wicked in some places, with mean-spirited, low-level bureaucrats and martinet inspectors wielding regulations like a wall of whirling blades. None of them, it was said, no matter how knowledgeable about the local regs or hungry to see a cargo specialist sweat, had ever tripped up candy. Customs-related delays can be a major cause for concern on a tight schedule, but not on Griselda, and this was primarily her doing. She'd have been a precious asset on any ship, but her skills, combined with folks' calm, steady demeanor and sharp knowledge for the legal and permit-related end of things, allowed this one to pass through customs like it was made of vapor. Yet it couldn't pull a profit? Financial issues were never my bag. I had no idea how much they were losing per flight from the shortened cargo bay, but it must have been mighty. I'd seen well-run ships go belly up in the past, Griselda seemed to be doing everything right on the fiscal end of things, but it simply wasn't enough. The handwriting was all over the bulkheads, and even a guy like me, who could botch his career moves and tie up his own assets so completely that he was functionally broke, could read it plain as print. Once I had my coffee in hand, I felt more human than not, so I got a bit of a start on the breakfast prep. Rena was now late, and that wasn't like her, so I called down to cargo to see what was up. She answered in a hurry, but said by way of apology, Ejak, have you checked out the borrowed data nets yet? No. Why? What's up? Things are bad here. Candy and I were looking at them. Sorry, I'll be right up. I dialed into the broadcast data stream with my wrist comp. It was all current, though three hours old, this far out. There seemed to be a state-run media organization piping the official news, and it was as unimpressive as the last batch of data we'd gotten at Oasis. The private nets were a different story altogether. There was vitriol enough to blister a whole world, and that seemed to be the goal for a lot of them. 
Individual vids uploaded live were showing hundreds of scenes of demonstration and vandalism in Finery and the outlying towns. Military troops in winter garb, cold gear as it was known here apparently, were stationed on all the street corners. What looked like a pre-riot was forming in Finery's massive and wide open square smack in the center of town. Hundreds of people carrying homemade banners scrawled with angry-looking pronouncements in low-speak chanted and marched and sang. One particular design, a star shape contained in a square, must have had some sort of progressive meaning to the locals as it was displayed at each demonstration. It was painted as graffiti all over the place, too, and people were wearing stylized versions of it on their heavy coats and hats. It looked darn cold to be outside demonstrating, but they were likely used to it. Occasionally, without warning, a private net would go dead as local censors yanked it from the grid, but there were hundreds more. Heck, a dozen or so went live even as I was surfing. Any efforts to curb rebellious speech here was just sand against the tide. Rena had come in some time before, and I'd absently switched my retinal display to the tiny pop-up hollow on my wrist comp. This place sucks, she muttered, staring over my shoulder at the images that swam by. It's going to suck for us, too, in about eight days, I replied, matching her tone and mood. I'm not leaving the ship when we dock. I don't think anybody should, including the passengers. I called up the bridge, and Ailareta answered. I let him know what we were seeing, but he replied that Carmi was, at that moment, doing a tour of the nets in her office, and that Command was already aware of it. He told me to bring it to the passengers' attention during breakfast, and that the offs would let us know what was going to happen overall. And wasn't breakfast running a little late? I can take a hint, so we got to work. I brought coffee, tea, and a fair simulation of fresh-squeezed juice to the passenger section and found Small and company already at the table, scouring Barlow's data and media nets. Ellen Wozniak saw the carafe in my hand and said, Thank God, while reaching for it. It was a precious moment. Her first words, I felt like a proud father. I see you folks are up on the Barlow situation, I stated. Oh, yes, was Small's only reply. They made their breakfast choices without fanfare or extra chit-chat. All the while, Small, with control of the Tri-D, just surfed from one private network to another. They all watched without comment or even readable emotion. After their meals were prepped and delivered, I asked if they needed anything else, and Small responded in the affirmative. Ejog, we have to work out a new filming strategy based on this. If you could get the dishes when we're done, and then leave us to our work for a few hours, that'd be ideal. No problem at all. I wanted to buff the deck in here later, but it can certainly wait. I'll drop off more coffee and tea, gather up the breakfast things, and give you folks some space. That gave me time to work on my station, of course. I'd been able to do full-scale shakedowns of all systems, which included that live fire test, and everything but the gunner's mastery of this newly networked defensive system was looking tight. I had some great battle simulations that I'd brought along, but many of them weren't compatible with this hardware. That just left me with that kindly authoring program, and I'd never been trained on it, so I was slow. I was only halfway done writing a simple ambush scenario, the purpose of which was to make use of Gunnery's detailed mapping capabilities. It required a lot of manual toggling, a lot of option selections, and a lot of mistakes that needed correcting. 
There was probably a way to automate all that, but I didn't know how to do it. When it was completed, I could then run this scenario on a high-grade SIM application that was a personal favorite. It came with a wide range of tools, including another programming environment, an animation workbench, and full battle theater simulation functionalities. Using its more advanced features would also be an uphill climb for me, but it ran just fine with the various simulation frames already queued up. Each of these utilized slightly different aspects of the source data because I wanted to be as thorough as possible. I could already point and shoot all of Griselda's weapons, even without any further practice, but that was just the beginning of where I wanted to go. The gunnery comm, as opposed to the open channel, buzzed at one point, giving me a quick but very real sense of validation. It was Ben Rogenston. You have time for meeting? Right now? Yeah, what's up? Pleased to be coming to engine room. This Barlow is like bomb to be exploding. Want to be very, very sure you have all power needed when needed. Don't you mean if? He gave me a baleful look, so I went down there right away. He was watching some kind of open news feed narrated by a woman speaking rapidly in a clipped low speak. Under her plainly passionate invective, the view was of a line of dead people, all apparently shot in the head lying frozen in a half meter of snow. Some looked like soldiers, others civilians. The images were gruesome enough without the camera continuously zooming in on their gaping head wounds. The chief engineer stared at it all with set features, and eyes so hard they took me aback. What's she saying? Is that a mass grave? No. Bodies simply left out and open, buried by snow. Dead and frozen maybe six months, maybe year. Is work of rebels, she say. Revenge. How old is this feed? Is live. This stuff is still going on? She say has been many such rebel executions and many more tortured and killed by state. Been happening back and forth for years. Places wasteland, but people fighting like it's made of gold. It's their home. He snorted derisively. Home should be about living, not dying. Plantagio, um, how you say, terraforming, never fully finished, life too hard. People want easy answers to complex questions, so put liars in charge, tugs. Now they angry, still want easy answers. Fah. He waved the news report and the entire system away in one motion, a spacer's truest and most final response to planet-based problems. I recognized it at once because it was how I felt myself. That could become a real civil war. How long till it blows, you think? Cannot say. Maybe soon. Then he cocked a critical eye at me. Sherita, she like you. The non-sequitur threw me for a moment, and he continued. Is good girl. Good engineer. You understand? I... I'm not sure. You seem like good boy. Good man. You make ship better by coming. Well, that's my job. I was honestly perplexed by what this was about. It didn't have the tone of that classic hands-off-my-daughter talk. Jacques stay at end of contract? Sign new one? Well, I have no idea. I mean, it's only been a few weeks. It depends. On what? Money? Well, I don't know. Not really, I guess. The contract is good. Ship is in trouble with money. You know this? I've heard a few things. Are you saying I asked for too much? Yeah, but no. 
Griselda might miss payments, maybe lost to financy, uh, uh, debtors, go broke, you see, leaves crew without place. That would be bad, but the cargo hold is too small. This ship will never make a profit at this rate. He looked down in sudden despair, that hard set to his eyes a light year away now. You mean engines too big? Others say same thing. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up until later, I injected, hoping to cheer him some. But I had an idea about that. A conventional ship in these circumstances would be doomed, but Griselda isn't conventional. I really think it could be reclassified as a secure merchant. The contracts are way more lucrative at that level. Ship too small? No, it's actually not. I looked into it once before. Different situation that didn't pan out. If gunnery can pass a certification series, then reclassifying the ship in Ain territory would be as simple as filing the paperwork. And I really think it can pass, a tailored series of tests anyway. There are surplus fleet data ships out there in private hands that get armored courier status all the time, which is just a subclass of secure merchant. And those things are even smaller than we are. Better armored maybe, but they lack a dedicated gunnery station completely. And Griselda's speed and maneuverability with these engines beats anything in its size or class. Once gunnery's fully up to snuff, this'll be one tough little ship. If we get the right certs, AINGOV, and even Fleet itself will pay handsomely to have us haul their smaller priority loads. You say us? Then Jacques think he might stay. Sure, I might. I might drop dead tomorrow. I might win the interstellar sweepstakes. I don't like to talk about what I might do. He nodded after some thought. It's a good idea. Have details? I can put something together, yeah. I'll make a list of primary sources I base this on and try to boil it down to a basic game plan. He nodded, looking a lot more chipper than when I first came in. With that settled for the moment, we went over gunnery's power needs during combat for the upteenth time. Figuring in a maximum requirement for a theoretical period well over twice as long as any steady exchange I'd ever heard of, we both confirmed that there would be a surplus. Engines were more than ready. In short order, I returned to gunnery and my simulations and worked until lunchtime prep required me in the galley. Rena had been sleeping but was up and at him right now. The passengers were apparently done with their meeting and ready to eat. Anything new from Barlow? I asked Small after I'd brought them their meal choices. He replied over his shoulder as he attacked his pork-like cutlet thing. Well, according to the private nets, President Billings has moved to his underground bunker outside the city until the troubles are resolved. It's really that bad down there? There's an organized rebellion? Several of Finery's surrounding towns have seen gunplay, and a few have been liberated. He answered, doing that quote thing with his fingers. This puts a crimp in your plans, doesn't it? Not at all. In fact, it's quite an opportunity. We can easily get footage of wheat fields and peasant workers for RTC. Then we'll cover the rioting in depth and get picked up by the major news services once we're back to civilization. You can do all that in 10 days' time. Good luck. Thank you, but I believe in skill and preparation over luck. Well said. If I can ask, what are we to do up here if you folks are delayed or run into trouble? Ah, he spoke, emphasizing dramatically with his fork. Your Captain Maynard and I discussed this during the charter negotiations. You are to give us ten days on the ground. 
We are to contact you daily. Should we fail to check in by time of launch, you will leave without us and relay this news to our employers who will follow up with an extraction team. If we are simply delayed and let you know in advance, you will remain for up to an additional five days. And if the ship is endangered during that time? Oh, that hardly seems likely to me, he said offhandedly, but with complete conviction. Really? I just looked at him. Not at all. Maybe I stood there a bit too long with my brow wrinkled, because he just gave me that vidstar grin again. Well, that's certainly good to hear. Can I get you folks anything else? You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.